This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time and to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I feel like it is such a significant hour and the history of nations is being defined right before us. The Church of Jesus Christ is vulnerable to discouragement in this hour, but that is if we stare at news as opposed to truth. Truth is something that is steady and unchanging and will never waver. It will never alter. When God speaks, he means it, and we can build our life and our confidences upon it which means we can actually know the future. I've said this many times through COVID-19. I have no idea what is true about this thing called the coronavirus. I mean, I really don't, okay? I have my moments where I think it's the whole thing's made up, and then I have moments where I acknowledge that there's something going on out there, right? But what is it? Where does it come from? How does it work? Why is it there? Why are we shutting down our world? What is all this? I don't know but I do know what God's word says. And that's what matters to me in a time like this. I have something beneath my feet that can hold me up and make me strong so that I can supply strength for others. The devil is trying to undermine foundations right now. He cannot undermine the word of God and the truth of God's word, the truth of his kingdom. That is going to stand steady. Now he can undermine our perception of it if we do not keep our gaze fixed on the king of kings. So let's just remember that and rally together as the body of Christ. I think this is our hour. I genuinely do. I feel like truth is hanging in the balance, but God is looking for his men and women to rise up. And there are so many stories like this as I've been going through this mini-series. This is part three. Uh, Two two parts ago was the plot twist, and it's talking about the storyline of Scripture that okay, it's impossible, the circumstances are bad, the enemy seems to be gaining the upper ground, then One man, two men, you know, just a small cluster of people will rise up and defy it in the name of Jesus with faith, and then suddenly the whole storyline will turn, and we see God deliver his people over and over and over again. If you're looking for that encouragement, just listen to the message, the plot twist. Last week's message was the counterpunch. These are all the ways in which God works, so this idea in boxing, the counterpunch, is actually the work of a seasoned veteran boxer. So it's only the best boxers that understand how to wield the counterpunch. But basically, it is a study of the enemy's movements for a long time. It's a defensive boxer, which isn't as exciting to watch as some guy who's just swinging out there. But some guy who just comes out swinging doesn't have the maturity to recognize that technically the way you're going to win this is by studying your opponent's weaknesses to realize where he's going to be exposed. And then at the right moment, even when you you keep your your left uh, glove down a little and say, you might want to try and strike me right here. You see that cheekbone? It'd be really fun to strike that, wouldn't it? And then right when he falls for the bait, boom, you give him the counterpunch. You see, this is God's way. He's a seasoned veteran boxer. And at times it will look like he's on the ropes. At times it will look like he's getting defeated. However, he knows his enemy. And at the right moment, he is going to strike the blow that will knock him out. Never despair as Christians. 
We serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The victor with a capital V. It's a V that can never be uncapitalized. He has done it, and he will continue to do it, and all that the enemy means for evil, he converts it. He will change it. He will alter it into a good for those of us that love him and are called according to his purpose. These are facts that we build our life and our eternity upon. So I'm going to go into part three of this. This is something that I've been chewing on now for a couple weeks. Very specifically, it's like an acute weight, and I'm not exactly sure how to even work it through my own life. But I had certain things happen this week in the midst of all this drama that we're all sort of enveloped in. And that was I had these moments where I felt an impartation of grace that is beyond anything I've known so far in my life. And it's hard to explain. I'm not exactly sure if I'll even know how to explain it properly. But when I read stories of like Ignatius, who was discipled by John the Apostle, when he's told that he's going to be fed to lions on the following day, that he rejoices and that he calls the lions his friends, there's a pause inside of Eric Ludi, and I esteem it, and I say, boy, is that great. But there's also the recognition that something's still missing inside of Eric Ludi because I'm not exactly, that's the way I want to respond, but I'm not exactly sure if I have the grace at this exact moment to respond that way, right? So it makes me feel a little vulnerable to not responding like Ignatius, even though I esteem Ignatius' response. Germanicus sprinting towards the wild beasts in the arena. You know what? I esteem it. I think it's one of the coolest statements I've ever heard. However, is it here? God, do I have that? Well, I know I have access to it, but at times you sort of wonder, it's like, God, when I get to that point, do I have, have I cultivated my response to you to the degree that when I get into that trying moment, I know how to access that? Peter deliberately choosing a more painful death to be crucified upside down. Okay, what is that? That is something from another realm. If we're not exercising such decisions now, when smaller difficulties come and we rejoice and we consider them our friends, what would cause me to think that when I get to the, more ex- the greater extremity that I'm going to respond the way I really wish I would? Richard Wormbrandt, uh, one of the most powerful illustrations of this in the modern day, which struck me dumb when I first began to hear his story. In fact, I would credit Richard Wormbrandt as being one of the turning points in my life to prove to me that, there, that this depth of Christianity that I read about in the New Testament is still real. Because I literally watched it in his life. I still remember seeing this wobbly video, terrible quality video that my brother was like, you need to see this. And so as a video cassette, he sticks it in. It was terrible quality, like a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. And I'm sure the original one wasn't that good to start with. So this is like, if you were judging it on its merits of quality, you would have thrown it out and not watched a second of it. However, I remember Richard Wormbrand, he, had, he walked up onto the stage. He didn't have shoes on because of the torture upon his feet. And so he sat in a chair. And the way he spoke transfixed me. And he had such love for his persecutors, such care. There was a softness in his soul, yet a fire in his eyes. He was strong yet soft simultaneously. And I remember saying, that is what I want right there. And I remember studying his story in greater depth and how he stood up in that theater where the communists had come in and they were attempting to basically cow the, the Christian leaders. 
And it's sort of like, you guys in on this? Because if you stand against this, you do know that it's going to go really bad for you. So we'll give you a, a chance here. You could come into alignment with the communist agenda, or you could die. Which way do you want to go? And everyone is silent, and Sabina Wormbrandt, you know, as it classically is stated, sort of looks over at Richard and says, uh, wipe the spit from Christ's face. And he says, if I do something, if I say anything, they're going to kill me. And her famed response is, I would rather be married to a dead man than a coward. And so Richard Wormbrandt is going to stand up in the midst of that hostility and speak on behalf of the truth of Jesus Christ. And he's going to be prisoner number one in Romania. Uh, okay, just, we could stop the story right there and I would be impressed, right? And I would say, God, do I have the grace to stand up in that theater? Do I have the grace to represent you and be prisoner number one? Okay, that, that's a question on the table already. But then what is going to happen after he's arrested, they stick a bag over his head, stick him into a car and he's taken away. No one even knows where he went. They won't even tell his wife what happened, right? He's He's, he's, he's a number now. He's no longer Richard Wormbrandt. So they have no record of Richard Wormbrandt. All they have is prisoner number one, right? So unless you know to ask where prisoner number one is, I mean, how in the world are you going to find this guy? But the way in which he is going to respond to that evil that is attempting to cow him and to break him is he says, look, guys, no matter what you tell me, all these things you're going to do to me, I do not fear them. And the proof of that is you can feel my... Pulse right now. If it's racing, you will know there is no God. And I, you know, I've pondered this statement many times over to recognize that my heart rate will increase oftentimes, even though on the outside you may not see it and I could look really solid. But still, it's like, well, I know my vulnerability. This week, I'm just saying, this week I tasted something. There were moments when I recognized what God was preparing me for and at the same time, there was a grace to match it. And it was almost like an encouragement by God to say, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with my church. And so as a result, that should hearten us to recognize God is wanting to increase in us, not decrease. This isn't a time for him to escape. He's like, well, if America's going down, I'm out of here. Instead, this is the very situation that he loves to enter into. He's just looking for men and women who are willing to house such grace. The Marvel of, Marvel of the 300. So uh, immediately, if you hear a title like that, you could think that I'm going to go to Gideon, right? I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm going in a different direction, but it doesn't, it's not going to hurt you to think about Gideon. That's a good uh, meditation right now, but that's not the meditation for today. Uh, this, the meditation I want to start with uh, comes from a conversation I had with Sandy uh, earlier uh, this week when she was talking about just being moved by studying Hannah and Hannah's vow unto God. And it was deeply stirring to me, just the few minutes that we talked out in the parking lot, and I said, I think that might need to be my message this week. And so I'm going to take something that Sandy started uh, this week, and I'm going to match it with something that God has been doing in me. And we're going to sort of combine that together, and that's what the marvel of the 300 is. So let's just go through this story in First Samuel. And it's the story of uh, a man named Elkanah, who has two wives, and their names are Peninnah and Hannah. And many of us know the story. I'm just going to read it, not because we don't know it, but just to get it freshly before us. Now, there was a certain man. His name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Uh-oh, guys, we have a problem right there. 
we have one that is producing something and the other one that is not. Okay, now I'm going to put penna over here. And for those of you that have been trained at Ellerslie, you know that when something goes over here, it's usually not good. And sorry that I'm going to stick Penina over here. I'm sure she was a pleasant lady at times, okay? However, I'm going to stick Hannah over here, who I know has the favor of God upon her, okay? And that, that becomes important in this story. So there's two. There always seems to be two everywhere we turn, right? So Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to, ha- to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Boy, I tell you what, it's one of those frustrating things in Scripture when you read through it. It's like, God, why are you always closing the wombs of the, of the super ladies? You know, it's like, it's all these great women that always have a closed womb, and that was a shame issue, too. And in a strange sense, I would feel like we feel like we have a closed womb right now as a church. I don't, I don't know if that would be a good way of describing it, but it's just sort of like, uh, God, we got some gloating going on over here and Penina's making us look really bad. Okay, why are you blessing Penina? That's what it looks like. Doesn't it look like God is blessing Penina and he's cursing Hannah? And that's the way it looks. It's like, why is evil getting away with all this nonsense? It doesn't seem to have any obstruction, just sort of mows down everything. Meanwhile, the good guys are over here doing their best, and, you know, we don't have a lot of favor. It seems like we have a closed womb. Her rival, isn't that an interesting term for it? Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, Hannah, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, no, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. So again, something is going to happen here. We have a first and a second. This first seems to have the initial strength, And yet, in the end, that second is going to actually rise up with a greater blessing. The first functions in the natural realm. The second one is going to succeed in and through a supernatural deposit. Over and over throughout history, you're going to see that which is barren is going to conceive and bear something that is supernatural. 
that God favors. And so even though at first, if it looks as if this second one is weaker and even defeated, what comes out of that trial is actually going to change the world. Okay, Samuel's no small character. You're going to see this happen over and over and over again throughout history, the history of the Bible. It's the same plot line that we see. So the two wives, we could call them the two rivals. Isn't it interesting, even the way that the flesh and the spirit are defined in Scripture is they're rivals, one with the other. They're at enmity with each other. And the first condition, known as the flesh, the old man, is at enmity with that which is the second, the spirit man. And God, Jesus comes to this earth and actually makes it clear, unless you be born again and you forsake this first condition and actually enter into this second condition of being in Christ instead of in Adam, which is the transfer that comes by humbling ourselves, repenting, and believing in Jesus, then we are under a just condemnation if we remain over here. And so as a result, God favors the second, just as we see Elkanah giving a double portion to Hannah. It's interesting even what their names mean, too. Peninnah means rubies, which sounds really nice. I I recognize that. It's like precious stone. And we're going to call her the rival of grace. And then Hannah, her name actually means grace or precious spirit. So precious stone spirit. Remember, you have heart of stone, and then you have this soft heart over here. You're going to see that same contrast being uh, brought out here. And I'm going to give Hannah a name, the one cherished above rubies. Okay, now that hearkens to a scripture which I'll read in a second in Proverbs 31. If there is one, there is a woman who is going to be cherished above rubies. Her value is even greater than rubies. Isn't that an interesting thought to think that Penina's name is rubies? In other words, there's nothing, I mean, she's precious. Just like if you were to say law, grace. You have a ta- tablets of stone, tablets of flesh. You have this first and this second. Well, the first isn't all bad. You know, the, the law that was given isn't bad. It's not evil. It's just it can't save. God prefers the second always in the story. And so it's amazing because the, in the Hebrew, the word chen is grace. Chena is that the name of the woman we're dealing with. It's a second name. Isn't that just interesting? And it's the one God favors. This is what actually in the New Testament is what saves. We are saved by grace through faith. Proverbs 31, 10 through 11. Who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. It's the same, it's the same root word for penina right there. The heart of her husband safely trusts her so he will have no lack of gain. So let's look at this. I'm going to just add in this is my adapted version for those of you that are wondering if it actually says this. It sort of does, you know. Who can find a virtuous Hannah? For her worth is far above Penina. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. I mean, that's, that's exactly what God's saying. This matters. What Hannah is doing in this story is very, very significant. Hannah is going to do something. Yes, she has a closed womb. And that's going to bring a great shame upon her life. And she is going to look like the lesser. Even in the world's eyes, Penina is mocking her, gloating over her. Oh, it's painful. You might be feeling a little of that right now, where it looks as if evil is triumphing and the church is back on its haunches. 
The church is weak right now. And I, mean, I don't know that most of us would have ever thought to say it. We feel like we have a closed womb. You know how much prayer has gone in to all this? You know how much prayer has just taken place on this campus just over the last eight, nine months, whatever it has been. I don't know what the count since mid-March is now. But since that point, and it's not that we weren't praying before that, but since that point, amplified prayer. There was a whole season when I was doing seven days of the week I had a prayer meeting online via Zoom. I'm sort of tired of Zoom now. And as a result, the amount of prayer that has ushered forth is not small. And yet it sure does seem like we have a closed womb. Well, I would have guessed that that prayer would have produced a child by now. Don't you think that we would have something to show penitent and say, see, this is what has happened. I started praying and then we got a child. Instead, you have this agony. And this agony will increase to the point where you begin to cry out with even greater fervor. God removed this shame from us. And you see Hannah being brought to that point where she is going to not just pray, but she is going to, brace yourselves guys, vow a vow. So Hannah's womb was shut up, which is a very real cultural shame that lay upon her. 1 Kings 8, 35, 40. It's interesting because this is talking about when the heavens are shut up, and in other words, we haven't had rain. Okay, so this is a judgment that is upon a people. Do you know that it's not God's design for a womb to be shut up or for the heavens to be shut up? This is not the way God designed it. And, but it's interesting that his people will walk through these seasons, but it will bring about something. So when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain, this is 1 Kings 8, 35 through 40, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in, he hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel indeed. Teach them the good way in which they should walk. Doesn't that sound very similar to 2 Chronicles seven fourteen? One of the things I was saying this past week is that 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is if my people who are called by my name will pray, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. Okay, this has been oft quoted uh, recently, but this isn't just the lone illustration of it. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, you're going to not just hear this type of phraseology, you're going to see the evidence of when God's people humble themselves, pray and seek his face and repent and turn from their wickedness that God heals them. And so as a result, he will do it on the individual level, which is what salvation is in the New Testament, by the way. Have you ever thought about what that is? If someone who is stuck over here and lost in their sin would humble themselves and pray and seek him and turn from their wickedness, he heals them. He saves them. Okay, this is just what we know. This is God's way. This is God's pattern. We see it here in 1 Kings. And send rain on your land which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if their, enemies besieges, if their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers." 
So Hannah is going to do something. And this is something that I want to amplify, which is sort of this burden that's on my heart. And that's why when Sandy was mentioning this out in the parking lot, it just struck me because it was matching with something that God is doing. But the articulation and the expression of it is hard for me. To be honest, it's sort of scary for me too. I'm gonna be just as blunt as I can in this, that I see something inside of Eric that is weak and I don't like it. And it's the type of thing that hinders forward progression. I've run into it many times over the years, by the way. Okay, any, any of you that are serious about Christianity, you run into these little hurdles every now and then. And that's a little higher than I've ever jumped before. If, I used to do a lot of jumps, and uh, so I, I would get boxes, I mean, really high, and I would, I would do jumps uh, on them. And one day, I was in a gym, and it didn't have boxes. It didn't have anywhere to jump, so all they had was like a the side of a, a weight rack, uh, and it was a thin bar, and I figured I would jump up and land on it, but my depth perception was off, so I jumped, and I hit my shin and fell over, and it wasn't a very pleasant experience. It was rather embarrassing, too. Let's just put it that way, but the next time you stuck a box out for me to have me jump, what did I do? I hesitated. Now I had something behind me that was hollering at me going, oh, you're going to miss next time. Your depth perception could still be off. This is sort of the way I feel right now, where it's just like I see, and I, I even know the grace of God is sufficient to, to do it, but you find that hesitation for whatever reason. And it's something I want to see God shove out of my life completely. I want to make this jump. I'm ready to move forward. I, intellectually, I'm in. But there's like this pause inside of Eric that's like, well, if you're really in, you do know what that's going to cost you. Yes, I do. Could you shut up? It's this voice that is hollering, trying to negotiate terms of peace. It's like, no, I'm not going to listen to that voice right now. I'm moving forward. Hannah made a vow. So this is the concept of a vow. If you, then I. God, if you do this, then here's what I will give. What she gives is rather extreme. She has never had a child, but if she gets a child, she is going to give that child to God with a Nazarite vow. This is like an extreme gift. This is extreme sacrifice. So even if she got one, she would give it back up. Okay, so let's measure that based on what we're dealing with right now. We are dealing with a country that is in the throes of a great evil. And the evil seems to have the upper hand right now. And the church of Jesus Christ unless there is divine intervention right now, is going to enter into a darkness that it has never experienced in this country for, well, for generations and generations since before the light of Christ came to this country. You have the Mayflower Compact, which whoa, was about, didn't we just celebrate like the anniversary of it like yesterday, ironically? And you, Mark, I did, when I was going through my series on the spiritual biography of a nation, it's like that is the beginning of the form of government that we know was on that Mayflower before they exited uh, that ship. And we literally, I don't know what the anniversary is, 1620, 1620. So it, I think we have 400 years. Uh, uh, 400 years exactly. It might have even been yesterday. Someone needs to check me on that. Uh, so in other words, we're right here at an anniversary of the history. That's an amazing thought 400 years right now as we're even talking about this what a day for attack and this is what's undermining the very fabric of a representative government 
something that will preserve the integrity of the ability for us as the body of Christ to prosper the gospel instead of have it hindered. Now, granted, we have not utilized that liberty and that privilege to prosper the gospel as of late. We have been sitting on our thumbs cherishing our liberty, or really, have we been cherishing our liberty? Instead, we've been spending it upon ourselves instead of spending it the way God has assigned us to spend it. And we've all been caught red-handed, or in this case, red-thumbed, since we're sitting on our thumbs. And we're chagrined. But Lord, if you would give us another opportunity, then, then what? Then what? If God were to give us another opportunity, then what? What would we be willing to do? And this is where we pause. It's like, well, God, how about I just keep living my life the way I was living it? That's not, that's not what Hannah's doing. Hannah is going to be a picture of grace at work inside of us. This is what saves us, people. It's the grace of God through faith. So as a result, what we see here is an animation of what God desires to do in us right now. If God is going to give us another season where we have access to this world to give it the gospel, what are we going to do with it? Do you have an answer to that? See, I know, I know I, I'm right there with you because I feel like the weight of this is so extreme that if I were to tell God I will do this, then I really need to do it. Exactly. That's what Hannah's going to do. James 5, 14 through 15. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall, will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That seems like an obscure thing for me to read at this exact point. However, in the midst of this is a word. It's a Greek word and it's in this passage. And it's different than what we're going to expect. You see, right now, we're going to read this, and you're going to just sort of see this pattern. Someone's sick in the church. They're going to call upon the elders. The elders are going to lay hands, anoint them with oil, and pray. And this prayer is going to save them. Well, it, actually, the word prayer right there, this is in the prayer of faith, will save the sick, is actually not the same word used in the rest of the New Testament for prayer. It's translated as prayer for us, but it's a different idea. These elders are going to surround and say, you know what? We're going to do something so that we can see God set this life free. They are going to, UK. <clears throat> that's what they're going to do. I know, you have to know your Greek to know what that means. It sounds like UK, like uh, Great Britain, right? They're going to UK, which means to vow. They're going to make a vow like Hannah made a vow. So a solemn vow, a UK, a vow of consecration. All right, Lord, here we are. We will not stop praying until we see this broken. It is, a, it is a form of commitment that we're not familiar with in the American church, and as a result, we're, we don't even know what to do with this. This is not modeled for us. We have not seen it. We have not seen our elders for years hold on and not let go because they made a vow unto God. There was something I, I watched the other day. It was last Saturday, so a week ago, so eight days ago, we had a men's conference in town and we watched The Insanity of God. I, it's, a, it's a risky thing to watch, I'm just gonna tell you that. It is a very, very powerful uh, documentary film. And there was this scene where this, these house church uh, Chinese Christians heard 
about the persecution of Christians in Somalia. Is that correct? Am I getting the, the countries correct? And when they heard, they were silent and they went to bed and the guy felt like his, you know, what he had shared obviously fell flat. And the next morning they were up early. In fact, he's going to find out an hour earlier than they ever would get up because they all made a solemn vow to pray for not just Somalia, but the other. They didn't know that persecution was elsewhere. I mean, they're, they're cut off from all knowledge and, and news networks, right? They didn't know that their Somalian brothers and sisters were being persecuted. And so they, they made a vow that they would get up an hour earlier for the rest of their life to pray for the church in Somalia and the other persecuted church Christians around the world. I, I, I don't know what that does to you, but it so shames me even hearing it, I don't know how to process it because my American grid wants to shoot it out the other side and immediately justify why I'm fine. And I'm a radical Christian here in America, people. <laughs> we got issues. When the radicals are like wanting to shoo this stuff away, and go, oh, well, that's a, that's a little too extreme. That's, that's for places like China. Or is it for places like the Church of Jesus Christ? There's no difference between the church and China and Russia and, and here other than seriousness, other than clarity of what matters. I am willing to say, God, I want the real thing and I want it here and I want it now. Start with me even if I'm the only weird guy on, on this continent. I want the real thing and I want you to start here. A solemn vow, a vow of consecration. So I almost called this message, remember the Alamo, but I figured that might be a little misleading because this isn't about the Alamo. But there's a reason why we have that phrase. There is a stand for independence in Texas. There is a fight where these men are going to lay down their lives. And there's going to be an, ex an extreme sense of vulnerability and loss in this process. Right now, we are, in a sense, feeling a similar thing where we are cherishing something maybe unlike we have cherished it before. Liberty. I mean, do you guys remember the day when we used to just function and like go to a restaurant and we didn't have to be wearing a mask? Oh, I forgot my mask in the car. And then you go in and uh, have you ever gone into a place where you forgot your mask? Uh, we're so heightened in our sensitivity now, but then it's all awkward. It's like, sorry, sir, I can't help you without a mask. I'm like, I don't have a mask on. Uh, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I have a mask for you. It's like, well, I really don't want your mask, but, you know. This is like Weirdsville, and we're all in it. And we've been in it for a long time. And in the process, what it's doing is it's causing us to cherish what we lost but we didn't even know how good it was when we had it. Precisely. That's our problem. We are not cherishing what we have and we're not utilizing what we have because we've taken it for granted. So Hannah, when she was growing up, just thought of having a family. And then she's gonna get married to Elkanah and she's like, I'm gonna have kids. But suddenly the value of children is going to skyrocket in her soul. Why? Because she can't. And when you're limited in your liberty, when you're limited in your functionality, suddenly that function becomes very, very precious. 
If suddenly it was illegal to share the gospel, to open your mouth and to preach Jesus, suddenly you are going to look back at all this season when you had the privilege of doing it and you're going to be in anguish. Why did I not use that? So, while we are still awake, while we are still alert, while we still have the right to speak, what are we doing? Instead of just waiting for the pain and the anguish in the years to come, why don't we remember the Alamo? Why don't we recall what we have already lost in this country and move to action? Don't ever forget this anguish. Don't ever forget this desperation. Don't ever forget what God did. Don't ever stop doing what you know to be doing every day of your life starting today. I don't know what it is. I doubt remember the Alamo is the right way of saying it. Or remember who almost won the election? You know, that could be maybe our phrase, eology, in the, in the future. In other words, how close do we need to get to the edge of the cliff before we finally wake up? and say, Lord, I'm ready to vow a vow. I'm ready to get serious about this. Praise God that he's stirring within us in this way. I want to get more serious about my Christianity, and I didn't know I could get more serious about my Christianity. I want to increase it multiple layers over. There's something that we all need. I think we could all use a good Insanity of, of God uh, session to sit and watch that documentary again. To remember what closed countries go through all the time. The misnomer, that means it's an incorrectly understood phrase or term. A closed country, a closed country, so there's different levels of countries that we look at as Christians, okay? So you could have persecution in a country, but a closed country means it's shut off. It's sort of like a North Korea. Uh, and there's, there's various countries that have closed off to Christianity and will heavily persecute anyone in their midst that is attempting to bring it. But you, it's very difficult to get in. It's closed. That's the whole concept. We have an idea, especially when you see something like the insanity of God, when it's dealing with the persecuted, because what we see them doing is thriving as a church. It's a strange thing to see the church that is persecuted thriving. And so what it does is it comes to a conclusion in our mind that maybe that's the best thing for us. Maybe it would be better for the American church to actually get shut down. Maybe it would be better for us to go underground. Maybe. You see that line of thought? If that's the only way that a church can be healthy, then maybe it would be better. So I'm going to call this a misnomer. A closed country is God's highest. This is the idea that's wrong. Okay, so when I say a misnomer, that means it's incorrect. You really have to know your word misnomer, though. A closed country is God's highest and best model for a country, while an open country, which is what we've enjoyed our entire life, is always means a rebellious and sin-saturated people. That is actually not true, but I could understand how someone could come to that conclusion, and that's why I want to bring this up. Our prayer is not for darkness to come into this land. Our desire isn't that the church gets shut down and there's an impairment to the voice of the saints. This isn't our prayer. Oswald J. Smith, you can understand why the misnomer exists. Just listen to this. This is back in the 1930s. It is reported that there were 7,000 churches that did not win a single soul for Jesus in an entire year. That means that 7,000 ministers preached the gospel for a whole year without reaching even one lost soul. 
Supposing that they preached, putting it at a low average, on 40 Sundays, not including extra meetings, that would mean that these 7,000 ministers preached 560,000 sermons in a single year. Think of the work, the labor, the money expended in salaries, etc., to make this possible. And yet 560,000 sermons preached by 7,000 ministers in 7,000 churches to tens of thousands of hearers during a period of 12 months failed to bring a single soul to Christ. Now, my brethren, there is something radically wrong somewhere. There is either something the matter with these 7,000 ministers or else with their 560,000 sermons or with both. So do you understand why a free and open country, you could argue, I actually don't know that this is the healthiest thing for the church. I get it. I understand. I've had this same thought. Am I supposed to pray for evil to take over this country? Is it better that we become a communist nation? Is that the best thing for the church of Jesus Christ? Key question hanging on the table right now. The work of the Holy Spirit is to open people and the nations to the gospel. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's opening. He's not closing people. He's opening them. And so we are opened to the gospel to receive the gospel. And so this is actually a gift. What we have in this country is a work of grace. It has been taken for granted and we have cheapened it and we have lost its value. That's the truth. But that doesn't mean it didn't have real value. And it doesn't mean it wasn't a work of grace and of the Holy Spirit to begin with. And it doesn't mean that it hasn't been sustained by the Holy Spirit. Remember, we are the great senders of more missionaries than any nation in history. This has been the, the, the grounds, the breeding ground for such amazing triumph around the world. To see slaves set free, to see nations change, see policies altered that are harsh towards smaller people and weaker. And yet, and yet, we have lost something. But that doesn't mean that being open to the gospel was a bad thing. It means it can be squandered. 1 chair versus 300 chairs. So earlier in the week, I'd used the illustration in a daily thunder of one chair and 50 chairs, but I'm going to use 300 because it's a good round number that would be more befitting of the room we're in. So here's my attempt to articulate something. Imagine that this chair directly in front of me, right smack in the middle, it's a nice chair. Imagine that I'm in a closed country. If I'm in a closed country, I have limited access to the amount of chairs. Imagine these people are, these chairs are people and they represent people that need to hear the gospel. But if I am in a closed country, my range of motion, my range of communication is suddenly squashed down to almost nothing. And so I have access to one chair. You know what shames us? Is that these persecuted countries, these closed countries, are taking advantage of that one chair to the maximum degree. And they are reaching it with everything they have, risking their lives, being thrown into prison so they could reach one chair. And yet we in this room have access to 300 chairs, and because of the ease in which we live, we're not even reaching one. That is what should disturb us. However, I want you to recognize something. This is what's stirring inside of me. If we were to wake up to the value of having access to 300 chairs, and we were to say, God, if, if you will give us another season, we're gonna go after not just one chair, not just two, not just 10, 
not just 50, not just 100. We'll go after every last one of the chairs that we can reach. If then. It's a vow. Do you see why I'm a little scared to make that vow? Because we've been sort of putzing around with our one chair. Uh, we're, we're so impressed with the persecuted church because of what they do with that one chair because it's so much better than what we do with, with our 300. We're not even getting the one. We're like polishing the leg of the chair. We're not even winning the chair so that Jesus is sitting in it. What's wrong with us? What does it take to wake us up? Maybe it's this. Hannah had to be stirred to the point where she said, Lord, I vow a vow. Even if you were to give me a child, that child will belong to you. If you give us another season as a church, that season belongs to you, Lord. It's not ours to do with what we want. It's not our season to just spend on ourselves. It is your season for you to define however you design. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. Take us, Lord. If you give us another season, it's a season for the church, not a season for our comforts. So one chair versus 300 chairs. The closed country Christians have one chair that they can reach, and they shame us when they, reach, when they risk their lives and give their all to win that one chair. Meanwhile, we have 300 chairs sitting in front of us ready to be won, and because of our ease, we back away from, each, even, from reaching even one chair. One chair versus 300 chairs. The rule of darkness is not the design of God, it is the result of turning out the lights. God wants the lights left on. So if darkness is ruling in this country, it's not because God designed this country to be ruled by darkness. If you study the history of our country, you'll recognize that it was already dark before we got here. You've never seen such a dark nation. All the Europeans, when they heard the reports of the missionaries that were coming over here, they'd never heard such evil being perpetrated in any place as was on this soil of North America. The evil, the amount of even martyrs' blood that was shed to win this territory for Christ and to see the light of Christ shine here in this land. It's a triumph of triumphs throughout history that's completely obliterated in our modern books of history. We have lost sight of the realities of what God did to gain this country. We've already known darkness in this country. Satan used to rule this territory, but he was pushed out but he wants back in. It is not more spiritual to have darkness rule. And as a result, it is simply the fact that the light is not being turned on. And if all of those that are hosting the light do not turn on the light in their life and shine it, then the light will go out in this country. The insanity of God quote is what I title this screen. Now, this is going to be an imperfect quote. I didn't actually get the video out and watch it through to get this exact quote, so this is going to be a paraphrase for those of you that are really good with exact verbiage. There are those that are sharing the gospel and those that are persecuting those that do. Two types. You have those that are sharing, but you also have those that are going to persecute those that do share. If we are not sharing Jesus every day and everywhere, then we are working on the side of those stopping the spread of the gospel. This is like so convicting to me. If you are silent and you are not sharing Jesus, then you are siding with the persecutors because that's their goal. Jesus would not be shared. 
I don't know how that sits inside of you, <laughs> but that's like uncomfortable. I don't like that conclusion, but that's how the persecuted church looks at it. It's like, we're not gonna side with the persecutors. We have to share. The persecutors wanna shut us up. They don't want Jesus to be shared. We must share. I don't wanna side with the persecutors by being silent. I wanna side with Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants to proclaim. The Holy Spirit wants to speak. Who are you agreeing with? Flesh or spirit? Right now, our access to the 300 chairs is hanging in the balance. I don't know if you guys see something worth fighting for here. But yes, we could get really sharp as a church and we could get down to our one chair version of Christianity. And maybe we'll give our life to reach that one chair. Praise God. And if God walks us through that, we will rejoice. But right now, it's really hard for me to forsake the 300 chairs without a fight. God has given us something and it's a trust that we have squandered. And yet when you recognize that you've squandered something, there is only one right thing to do and that is to repent of it and to return as the prodigal unto the house, back to the Father, to say, Father, I'm gonna do it your way. I'm not gonna take this great inheritance and spend it on myself. You gave it to me so I could bring glory to your house, to your name. Oh Lord, forgive me. We have not used wisely what we've been given. And for many of us, we didn't know how valuable it was. What I'm desiring is that we as the saints of God would be stirred to see its value afresh. Is this the time for a Hannah-esque vow? You know, like Hannah had, do you have the agony inside of you? Is it really bothering you that Peninnah is bragging about her victory? That is mocking you in your position of fruitlessness. What do you have to show for your Christianity? Christianity's weak. The church is dead. How are you, you handling that? Are you just going to sit there and take it? Or are you going to gain that anguish that is necessary? And even if Eli thinks that you're drunk, your lips start muttering because you have so much agony inside of you. The groan starts to grow. And it turns into not just a prayer, but a vow. E.M. Bounds, from his, uh, his complete works, prayer in its highest form of faith is that prayer which carries the whole man as a sacrificial offering. I'm going I'm to read that first line again because it's a profound line. Prayer in its highest form of faith is that prayer which carries the whole man as a sacrificial offering. It's not like, oh God, could you do that? But God, here I am. Could you do that? And if you need to use me, use me. In other words, the man or the woman praying is also being carried into the prayer as an offering. God, if you need me to carry that out, I'm here. If something needs to stand against this tidal wave of darkness, use me. Even if you spend me. Even if I die. Thus devoting the whole man himself and his all to God in a definite, intelligent vow. Never to be broken in a quenchless and impassioned desire for heaven. I'm going to read it again. 
Prayer in its highest form of faith is that prayer which carries the whole man as a sacrificial offering, thus devoting the whole man himself and his all to God in a definite, intelligent vow, never to be broken in a quenchless and impassioned desire for heaven. This whole concept of a vow is very intimidating to the soul of Eric Ludi. It makes me squeamish, but I see the rightness of it, and I want to, in an intelligent and definite way, offer myself to God. I remember Reese Howells reasoning with his Bible college, which was basically a prayer college during World War II, and he says, if our sons are over there in France laying down their lives to stand against Hitler, how could we do any less here in prayer? Would we be willing to commit ourselves in prayer the same way they are committed on the battlefield? They are ready to die. Are we ready to die? How could we enter into prayer with any less of a fervor than they enter into war? That was his question. Reese Howells is going to, in and through that World War II period where he was praying, is going to have his body crushed. He's not going to live but a little longer after that. His, and everyone that knew him said that's when he basically died. He gave up his life to stand against that evil known as Hitler. Okay, that's interesting. You see, we don't have that modeling around us. We have not seen such impassioned, calculated, defined givenness to Jesus Christ to stand against an evil no matter what. You want the evil to go, but are you willing to enter into the brotherhood, sisterhood of the kingdom of heaven and commit yourself unto such an end? That's what's stirring in me. It's a big question mark before the soul of Eric Ludi. How serious do you take this, Eric? Are you just going to moan and groan and give a little kitchen speech to your wife? Or are you ready to be bent for the purposes of your king? Is this the time for an intelligent, definite, sacrificial offering? I'm not saying just an emotional one. You notice I didn't put emotional in the list. This is not something I'm asking for your emotions to dictate. I'm asking for the word of God, the truth of who he is, the realities of what you know, to bring you to a place of intelligent, definite, sacrificial offering. What is this worth to you? I do not want to look back at this stretch of time and realize that there was more I could have done. I've said this to Leslie more than a few times. There's part of me that wishes in the last week that I had gone into politics as I had thought I was going to because I would feel useful right now. And God has to remind me, I have you right where I want you. Don't overthink and overstate the value of a political leader right now and let that shroud out or shadow the value of a spiritual leader in such a time as this. We have a greater power and that's the power of prayer. We have a greater power, and that could very well be the intelligent, definite, sacrificial vow of faith. Lord, here we are. We belong to you, and we're ready to fight. So let me give you a sample prayer. 
it, I, this is what I'm just working with. I'm working out some samples. I'm trying to get some legs to this. Lord, I realized that I had an amazing gift of liberty and I did not cherish it as I ought to have. I am grieved at the depths of my soul to realize that I had 300 chairs in front of me and I didn't even hardly make the effort to go after one of them. But Lord, I want to make an intelligent, definite offering of myself to you today. Here I am. I am deciding today that I'm going to reach the chairs within my range. If that be one chair, then I commit myself to heartily and to sacrificially reach that one chair. But if it be 300 chairs, Lord, I will not reach only one, but I will labor with all the grace supplied by heaven to reach every last one of those 300 chairs. If we have another season where 300 chairs are before us and we have the ability to reach them, what are we willing to give? I can't tell you how this is going to play out. But I do know that we need to posture our soul to reach whatever is in front of us, whether that be one or 300. Let's commit ourselves unto God right now and not wait for the events of history to unfold, but let's decide now what we are going to do. Father, We need you and your Holy Spirit to walk us through this. It's not emotion that we need right now. It's truth. It's reality. It's your kingdom pattern. Lord, we are shamed by the persecuted Christians around this world. We are humbled. But Lord Jesus, you have given us something and may we wield it well. It is not too late for the church to awaken. It is not too late for the mercy of God to be activated. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Lord, we appeal to you to show us what we must do, to train us in your ways, to bring us to our knees right now for your glory, honor, and praise. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.